Well, you seem like a fun group this morning. That's all about to change. No, I'm just kidding. If you'd like, you can navigate on your device or open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. You don't have to, I'm just suggesting. We're going to look at verses 29 through 42. Exodus 12, 29 through 42. The topic, the deaths of the firstborn of man and beast convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. The title of our message, let them go, let them go, can't hold them back anymore. I do it for you. I have, uh, never mind. Let's pray. Father, it's always a good idea for us to pause before we get into your word to remind us that it is alive and powerful and that it wants to discern between the soul and the spirit in a place only you can communicate to. By your spirit, I pray that you would, Lord, that you would uh, reach into our hearts, as it were, and meet our deepest spiritual needs. Regardless the topic and the flow of the study this morning, we know that the Holy Spirit can apply it, Lord, in unique and personal ways. And while we do want to learn about your word and see Jesus on the pages of the scripture, we're a people that need to be touched by you in a personal way. Whether we're in grief or whether we're in joy, Lord, we need you to reveal yourself to us this morning. Do that, we pray, in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Hello, pilgrim. I'm not going to attempt an impression of that, but you savvy film buffs associate that greeting with the Duke. Ask anyone to impersonate John Wayne, and they'll invariably say, hello, pilgrim, or some variation of it in their impersonation. It comes originally from the film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. He called someone pilgrim over 20 times in conversation. Uh, There's a YouTube video that has every one of them. And uh, it's, it's pretty interesting how many times he uses it in that movie. The word next occurred in McClintock about a year later. Even though he didn't say it much afterward, it's a phrase that became associated with John Wayne. Being Americans, we immediately associate the word pilgrim with the pilgrims of Plymouth Colony in present-day Plymouth, Massachusetts. They're the group that gave us Thanksgiving as a holiday. Pilgrim is a word we seriously need to reintroduce into our Christian vocabulary. Instead of reminding us of the Duke or of the pilgrims, it needs to remind us of our daily pilgrimage as believers in Jesus Christ. John Bunyan wrote a book in the 1600s, we call it Pilgrim's Progress. The full title is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come. It's regarded as one of the most significant works of religious English literature, It's been translated into more than 200 languages. It's never been out of print. It has also been cited as the first novel written in English. It's an allegory whose hero is named Christian. The plot centers on Christian's journey from his hometown, the city of destruction, to the celestial city. Along the path of his pilgrimage, Christian encounters things that are typical of our lives as believers on earth headed to heaven. Pilgrim's progress may be written in the genre of an allegory, but there is nothing allegorical about its message. You and I aren't simply like 
pilgrims in certain areas of our lives, we really are pilgrims all the time, every day, on our way home. In our verses today, the Israelites are let go from slavery by Pharaoh. They immediately become pilgrims on their way to the promised land and beyond that to heaven. As we work our way through these verses, we'll have an opportunity to talk about pilgrims and their pilgrimage. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you've been set free for your pilgrimage. Number two, you're to set out on your pilgrimage. Let's take a look, first of all, at being set free in verses 28 through 32. Long before the Mayflower sailed, God's people were pilgrims. The Bible is full with them. The 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews speaks, among others, of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are representative of all believers, and it's said of them, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And so the writer to the Hebrews understands that every believer is a stranger and a pilgrim going through this earth, uh, awaiting the time that we will be in heaven with the Lord. Our homeland is never the earth. It is after the earth. It is heaven. Now, this by itself is life-altering in its implications. It tells me I should never look to settle in this life I'm always pressing forward in the work of the gospel until I enter the celestial city whose builder and maker is God. Perhaps this week you read the Billy Graham quote, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. There's a backstory to that. Evangelist and author D.L. Moody was one of Billy Graham's favorites. Moody first uttered the quote. Here it is in full. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that's all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. Moody and Graham knew that they were pilgrims just passing through, and that's why they could talk like that. But it isn't something reserved for renowned evangelists. It is common to all believers. If you get nothing else out of today, get this. I am a pilgrim. You are a pilgrim just passing through. So let's take a look at the Israelites as they became pilgrims one night. Verse 29 And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. God had given Pharaoh over eight months to let the Israelites go. He had performed nine wonders as signs of his will and his power. Pharaoh only hardened himself against God. One wondrous sign remained, the death of the firstborn. Its severity would overcome Pharaoh's reluctance. If anyone thinks that God was unfair or cruel, we need to remember a few things. And by the way, people do think that. Uh, oftentimes, they believe that the Lord is cruel, that he issues unusual punishments, and uh, that we need to be concerned about that. Well, let me, let me address that a little bit. 
Uh, God's people, first of all, were enslaved. This was a rescue mission. You know what happens on rescue missions? Uh, people die, and, and they needed to be set free. God had been incredibly long-suffering with Pharaoh. I mentioned that it had been eight months that he'd been dealing with him, each time saying, let my people go, and Pharaoh could have done that at any point. The death of the firstborn was avoidable. Again, Pharaoh could have let the Israelites go, or there was a process of applying blood to the door in which the Passover lamb uh, or the, the angel of death would pass over your house. And fourthly, everyone dies, but to know the moment of your death is a tremendous mercy on God's part, giving you real incentive to receive his offer of eternal life. I mean, you know, we all, people know that they're going to die, and even sometimes when you think about it, you think, well, you know, I'm going to die someday. But if God came to you after having performed nine wondrous signs proving his, his existence and his power and said, okay, I've got a hot tip. At midnight tonight, you are going to die and pass into eternity. That's merciful, if you ask me. There's nothing better than going to an emergency room and, and being able to talk to a person who is just hanging on to life and is going to say, you are going to die in just a few minutes or maybe a few hours. You need to get your life right with God right now. And so this is all extremely merciful. There's nothing cruel, nothing unusual about God's dealing with the Egyptians. Verse 30, so Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Our world is beset with tragedies. In their aftermath, we catch glimpses of the overwhelming grief the survivors display. I can't even fathom what that night in Egypt must have been like. And I thank, I'm thankful that Moses is reserved about it. He doesn't go into a lot of explanation about the shrieking and the wailing and the crying. Sometimes I think uh, more, less is more. Uh, but imagine what that night must have been like, a night like no other. Then in verse 31, he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. Pharaoh asking for a blessing indicates that he finally understood the power of God. As I've said in previous studies, God spoke to Pharaoh and by extension to Egypt and the surrounding nations in a language they understood, the power of gods. Their lower G gods, including Pharaoh, were no match for the God of the Hebrews. As we've said before, uh, and as Yul Brenner so eloquently stated in the Ten Commandments, his God is God. And so when you're dealing with a government that believes that its head is a, an incarnate God and that has 150 deities and is pretty powerful thinking that their gods beat up on other gods, you need to speak in a language they understand. And so God came and he said, here's what I'm going to do, bam, 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 and, and he pretty well wiped out the gods of Egypt. And, and this, is, this is the way you have to talk to some people, and he did. But along the way, we've pointed out the, it was severe, but it was a severe mercy as well. Generations earlier, Joseph, who was an Israelite, but second only to Pharaoh at the time because of God's providence, 
had led his starving family to Goshen just outside of Egypt. The Jews had been there for about four centuries. They weren't nomadic wanderers. They had settled in Egypt. And even though they were slaves, they had a regular life settled in Egypt. Literally overnight, they were asked to leave everything they had ever known and their lifestyle and embark on a pilgrimage. Now, I can see where that could be somewhat exciting, but I can also see how it would be somewhat terrifying. It's really something that comes out of nowhere. For one thing, the territory they would be passing through was hostile. There were enemies to fight, and having been slaves, they had no training or weaponry uh, for fighting. There were no mini-marts along the way. They would daily be needs for food and water for what we'll see were quite a lot of people and their livestock. And there was going to be intense spiritual warfare as well. God defeated the lower G gods of Egypt, but they would regroup and seek to destroy the Jews in the desert. You know the story. Pharaoh's going to try and back them into the Red Sea and drown them and um, come after them. Rejuvenated that maybe he can at last defeat the God of the Hebrews. And so there were a lot of perils in the wilderness. I make one simple observation for us from these opening verses. When a person's will is freed by the operation upon it of God the Holy Spirit, when he or she is convinced of sin and of righteousness and of the coming judgment, and when he or she receives the free gift of salvation by faith, that person who we call a Christian becomes a lifelong pilgrim on a pilgrimage through this world to destination heaven. There are immediately, they are immediately delivered from slavery to sin and Satan, and they set out on a journey home. We're not like the pilgrims who came over from Europe. They came to settle, to establish something permanent. Now, of course, spiritually, as Christians, they should remain strangers on their way to heaven, but I think you understand what I'm saying. We need constant reminding we are not settlers. We are always moving forward to heaven. We live in the greatest country on earth, maybe the greatest country ever. Even with all of our problems, we are still hopeful that we can be that shining city on the hill that Ronald Reagan once spoke of. But guys and gals, this is never our home. We can't ever get comfy while there is work to be done. There is no such thing as Christian retirement. All there is is more and more and more glorious work for the gospel. We are not settlers, we are strangers, and we should go out each day as pilgrims with our contact with the world as light as possible, strangers just passing through. There's one game-changing advantage to embracing pilgrim status. Heaven so fills your thoughts that the tragedies of this world and your life are put into perspective. It's not that we're so heavenly-minded we become no earthly good. Indeed, a Christian should do the most good in every circumstance. Whenever there's a tragedy or catastrophe, a Christian and Christian should rise to the occasion uh, and minister uh, as the Lord leads. But we never lose sight of our destination where there will be no more tears. Ultimately, the answer to every question, every tragedy, is going to be in eternity. Uh, Some things we will never put into a a proper understanding from a logical standpoint. I mean, you see some of these tragedies that happen, 
And how many of you have said to yourself, how can those people even go through that? How can you even deal with that? It's, a, it's at such a magnitude that it's overwhelming. And you know what? That's true. It is overwhelming. And platitudes, you know, uh, you know, all things work together for good. Well, yes, they do. But in the meantime, you're crippled with grief. You're overcome by sorrow. And there's a sense in which it's not escapism to know for a fact that one day as a Christian, you're gonna leave all of that behind and there will be a place for you with no tears, no tears at all. It's almost not fathomable, but that's the perspective that you and I can have as we are passing through as pilgrims and strangers. Terrible things happen, and you know why? Because men are sinners, because this world is, uh, belongs to the God of this world, the ruler of this age. God is doing everything that could possibly be done to save individuals from out of that for eternity. While he's doing that, he tolerates evil, terrible evil, tremendous evil. Um, but in the long run, men and women, children will be saved and will inherit eternally, eternity and, and know eternal life. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a great mindset, the pilgrim mindset. And so we need to embrace it. Now, secondly, you're to set out on your pilgrimage. Sometimes you need a kickstart to get going. I don't know if you guys follow Kickstarter, one of those crowdfunding sites where you ask for funding to kickstart your project. I always go in there and search for coffee machines. And uh, some of them are ingenious and some of them are just really stupid. But anyway, uh, since it launched in 2009, 12 million people have pledged $2.8 billion to fund 116,000 projects. And so you, know, so you put your project up there and then you say, hey, this is what I wanna do. And people say, I'm gonna uh, you know, invest in that. Uh, and usually, like if it's a coffee maker, then you get one of the first run off of the, you know, off of the factory floor for a reduced price. And uh, it, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, of course, there are a lot of Kickstarter failures. And uh, if they fail, you lose your money. But hey, it's only money. Uh, now, the Israelites, why am I saying this? Because the Israelites may have invented crowdfunding, and they certainly got a kickstart from the Egyptians, so hang, hang with me on this. Verse 33, and the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall be dead. Now, God in his foreknowledge saw that the death of the firstborn would be the final sign necessary to overcome Pharaoh's reluctance. The Egyptians didn't know that, and they were thinking that if Pharaoh didn't let Israel go now, then God would start killing even more Egyptians. And so they said, hey, this has to stop right now. We can't afford to lose anything else. Their entire agricultural economy had been destroyed for maybe decades to come. And now the firstborn of every family and every animal had been killed. And so, I mean, there, there comes a point at which you need to overrule Pharaoh and say, hey, these people need to go. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. What? Who cares? I mean, we're in the middle of this tremendous flow of narrative, and they say, oh, by the way, they took their unleavened bread with them, wrapped up in their clothes. This is crazy, except that Moses is also establishing that as this nation is born, there is a lot going on. And there's going to be, as we saw last week, a series of festivals or feasts on the calendar 
beginning with Passover, then unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, uh, you know, and, and then uh, tabernacles ends it all. But uh, Moses is interested in giving you more than just the story. He wants to establish that Israel is a significant nation. And we're going to see a lot of references to their unleavened dough. Uh, and, and later in Exodus, we're going to see all of the feasts, all seven of them, and we're going to talk again about how they were prophetic of God's plan of redemption, not just for Israel, but for the human race. And so the unleavened bread also spoke of the haste in which they left Goshen. They had no time for the dough to rise. And so the tension that's building here is that, hey, you know, we've been in bondage all these years, but now just like that, we have to leave, grab some unleavened bread, and let's go. As for the bowls, listen to this. It was customary to travel with the kneading troughs bound in clothing to keep them handy. They were small wooden bowls used to mix flour and water or milk for bread cakes. Some were made of leather and could be closed like a pocketbook. Dough was often carried in them. Pretty ingenious. And so people were always walking around with their, their dough so that they could make a little bit of food. Some of them were wooden and some had these cool leather pouches. I could see this pitched on TV Shark Tank as uh, you know the next latest, greatest product. Hey, you may have a wooden bowl, but we have a leather one with Velcro you know, or something like that. And so it was just, it was something that every Israelite had on them. If you, if you robbed an Israelite, you'd always get their kneading trough, you know, so something like that. No? It's kind of like, what do you, you travel with something. Everybody travels with something that they can't do without. And I don't want to know what it is. Mine has to do with coffee, but, uh, you know, a lot of cool travel coffee stuff. And now some cars you can plug, some people have cars that have like 110 outlets in them, so you can bring your whole like espresso machine with you now. Verse 35, now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So here's what I meant, crowdfunding. They were a huge crowd. They asked for these things, and people gave them to them in abundance. So it was the very first crowdfunding program. I don't like the connotation of plundered makes the Israelites seem like they were robbers. Like when you're being held up and you say, take everything, you know, uh, you're under duress. I guess it could be construed that way. The Israelites were asking nicely while the Egyptians were thinking, take whatever you want before God kills more people. But I, I think really it's, it's not so, they ended up plundering them in one sense, uh, but it was, uh, it was given freely. Uh, in, in order for them to go. And some commentators have suggested that we see it as maybe deserved for back wages uh, for their slavery. But however you look at it, uh, they ended up with tremendous wealth. Now, just an aside here, normally we don't solicit funding for God's projects from non-believers. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's not a, it's never a good idea to get money or goods or anything else from unbelievers uh, you know, to do the work of God. Believers should fund that. And the truth is, here at Calvary, we almost never, if ever, uh, solicit from believers either. We don't talk to you about giving or what you should give. You're safe with your wallet here at Calvary Chapel. No, we're not, we're not after your money. However, I will say this. When we do hit the topic of money in Scripture, people always ask me, uh, they say, hey, Gene, you know, do you, in the New Testament, do you have to tithe? Do you have to give 10% of your income? And the answer to that, 
The quick answer is no, and then everybody sighs, oh, thank goodness, oh man, because I'd be in so much trouble if that were true. And, uh, but, so what is the New Testament standard for giving? Paul gives it in the Corinthian epistles. He says, first of all, it's, uh, it's un- understood that Christians give. And then he says you should give regularly, you should give joyfully, or some say hilariously, ha, ha, ha. The offering should be the funniest part of the, ser- of the service. <laughs> there, there goes my lunch. But uh, anyway, so you should give regularly, you should give joyfully, and you should give sacrificially. And so somewhere between $1 and however much money you actually make is a number that God is going to talk to you personally about that hits all of that, those benchmarks, that it's regular, that it's joyful or hilarious, and that it's sacrificial. And that's between you and the Lord. And, and, and we trust that you have a relationship with the Lord and that he will reveal that to you. Uh, but um, one thing that we wanna talk about, so, so we don't, we're not looking for non-believers to fund our projects. We're looking for believers, but we're not asking you, we're just leaving that to you. Um, in the case of the Israelites, as I said, commentators soften the plundering by suggesting the stuff deserved was a kind of back wages for them. And I guess that's a good way of looking at it. However you look at it, the Jews went out with considerable wealth, which sounds great, but wasn't a great idea when you're traveling through the desert in hostile lands without a Brinks truck. I mean, you're, you're literally just carrying Egyptian garments and gold and silver uh, as you wander through the desert, and there are other nations whose lands are thinking, hey, these guys are the guys that plundered the Egyptians. We don't have to rob the Egyptians, we just rob them. As far as we know, they have no military experience. This is an easy pickings kind of a situation. And so verse 37, then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Time to put on our math hats. We're told elsewhere that there were 603,550 men who qualified for military service. That's from the book of Numbers, chapter 1. Based on this, a conservative estimate for the total number that left, including women and children, would be in excess of two million people. Wow, but we're not done. Because one source suggests it was about double that, and here's the math. Men of war, these are rounded off figures. Men of war, 600,000. Wives of men of war, 600,000. Wives of others not engaged as men of war and their sisters, 400,000. Children of men of war, 2,400,000 four per family, which was a good average for the Israelites. Levites a month old and upward, 22,300. Wives of Levites, 30 to 50 years old, 8,580. Wives of younger and older Levites and sisters, 2,000. Children of Levites, 34,320. Total number of Israelites, 4,067,200. But we're still not done because verse 28 says, a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds a great deal of livestock. Who were this mixed multitude? In this multitude were to be found heathens who were deeply impressed by the wonderful works of the Lord, as seen in the history of Israel, many who were tired of the despotic rule of Pharaoh, many more who were animated by curiosity and who desired to see what end this vast nation would be led. And no doubt many families who had intermarried with Israel would follow their relatives animated by mingled feelings of love and sorrow. I'm sure, uh, not sure how they arrived at the number, but the same source we've been quoting suggests that there were as many as two million in the mixed multitude, 
So you could have upwards of six million people and livestock. Quite a congregation. Here's a description of their moving column. If they went 400 abreast, there would be a line 8.7 miles long, allowing three feet for each of the 15,252 rows. Now, we immediately say, oh, it can't be that many people. Yes, it could. Yes, it was. This is a tremendous undertaking, the likes of which are incredible, just the logistics of it. I have a hard time making a grocery list and going to Walmart and fulfilling it. You know, I go crazy if they don't have the one item that I'm looking for. It's like, I want to find the manager. Where is the basil pesto? It's usually right here. Every week, it's right here. It's gone. I have two recipes that require basil pesto. If I can't find it, I have to go home right now and redo my shopping list and start all over again. It's, it's terrifying. Six million people and their livestock. Now, can you begin to appreciate why Moses needed 40 years of training as a desert shepherd? He had a tremendous flock to lead into and through the desert. And I don't know that anything can ever truly prepare you for this, but he wasn't ready at age 40 as a military leader. Being a general wasn't going to help him, but being a shepherd would. Verse 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had bought, excuse me, brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Who, Moses must have really liked bread. I mean, he just, hey, by the way, have I talked to you about unleavened bread in the last few minutes? Because that's what we're going to be eating for a while. It reminds me of the prophetic progress of our world today, however, the haste in which they left. Scoffers point out that the world has gone on for centuries and Jesus has not returned. I mean, I've been a Christian since 1979, and, and I've been saying, ready or not, Jesus is coming. I mean, I, that started as a bumper sticker in my uh, rear, um, uh, on my bumper. And, uh, well, it, I, <laughs> it started off as a bumper sticker that I put on my rear window, is what I was trying to say, and I couldn't think of the name window. I mean, it just was, because I'm trying to remember if I bought basil pesto this week or not for this afternoon. But anyway... Uh, so I've been saying that since then. I mean, this has been going on for centuries, and scoffers say, where's the promise of his coming? Everything just continues just the way it always has. But you know what? When you read the book of Revelation, for example, once God pulls the trigger on something, it, it's on. I mean, it happens. Bam, bam, bam. And, and so these guys, yeah, 430 years uh, you know, total, uh, including all this last eight months and all the waiting and waiting. And then one night said, this is it tonight, right now. Grab your unleavened bread right now. We are gone. And, and you know, that's what the tribulation is gonna be like in the future. Uh, people watch these specials on television where maybe we can save the environment, maybe we can be better people, maybe we can live, you know, forever and avoid the apocalypse. No, no. Because the apocalypse has nothing to do with the environment, and it does have a lot to do with becoming better people, but that only happens when you trust Christ as your Savior. And so 
Once that starts, Jesus says it's going to happen quickly, and that means that the seven years are going to happen in succession, bam, 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 just as he says in the book of the Revelation. And so God, he delays from one point of view, although we know that a 1,000 years is like one day to the Lord. Uh, It seems to be a delay, but once he starts something, it's on. Now, this phrase, out of Egypt, is repeated 56 more times in the Bible after this point. Since Egypt is recognized as a type of the flesh, we should always be able to be described as being out of Egypt. Passover lamb was consumed, then unleavened bread was their diet, all to be commemorated in annual feasts that would pass on the knowledge of their deliverance. Verse 40, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. It came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very day, came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. There are discussions and debates about exactly when the 430 years begin. One that makes sense is the day that God revealed to Abraham that his descendants would in fact be held captive in Egypt. It's a real number, not a guess or an estimate because Moses wrote on that very same day to let us know it was a precise moment. It's amazing how often God does something on a specific prophesied day. The day Jesus rode into Jerusalem that last week of his life on earth before the resurrection was predicted to the very day by the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. And it could have been calculated. And that's why Jesus said, you can't keep people from screaming and shouting because if they didn't, the rocks would have to cry out because this is that day. As we saw last week, and we'll see again in Exodus, Jesus fulfilled the first four calendar feasts of Israel in his first coming on the very day that they were being observed. When Jesus died on the cross, the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple, fulfilling that to the very day. And so God uh, is able to do these things precisely. Verse 42 It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. The narrative again leaves the immediate story to remind how important the annual observances would be to the life of the nation. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles, those are feasts that are gonna require male Jews to travel to Jerusalem three times each year. Even though the Jews would finally get into the promised land, the promised land wasn't a place where they really settled spiritually because it was filled with enemies uh, and fighting and those kinds of things. And even after they conquered the land, there was a pilgrimage three times a year from the outlying areas back to Jerusalem to remind them that they remained pilgrim wanderers, spiritually speaking. And so you may settle in but, you know, in, in a physical sense, but you have to have the mindset that you're a pilgrim. The earthly promised land is not a type of heaven. Nothing pertaining to this earth is home for any of God's people. As I said earlier, the Israelites left the perils of Egypt for the perils of the pilgrimage, but leave it, they did. They set out, and so do we when we get saved. Perils there be, however, along the way. Some of them, if we're honest, are terrible. They cause nearly unbearable suffering and sorrow. Their effect can be crippling. Nevertheless, we must set out as pilgrims every day and embrace the truth that we're on a pilgrimage and keep our uh, eyes set on the city whose builder and maker is God. Now, I mentioned John Bunyan. 
He was no stranger to a pilgrim's peril. He spent a dozen years in prison for refusing to stop preaching the gospel. And then later on in his life, he was imprisoned again. Here's a little overview of Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe you haven't read it recently or maybe you've never read it. Christian flees from the city of destruction and makes his way through many dangers and difficulties to the celestial city. One of the first places to which Christian comes is the slough of despond, where he is almost swamped by doubts and fears. Almost thrown off course, the faithful evangelist directs him to the wicket gate through which he must pass to find the path to the celestial city. Going through, he comes to the house of the interpreter, who shows him many wondrous things and sends him on his way. From there, Christian ascends a hill with a cross upon it, where he loses the burden of sin from his back. He goes on up another hill called Difficulty, passes between two chained lions to a lodge where he rests and is armed for his onward journey. His arms and armor are immediately put to the test in a long and painful battle with Apollyon, where Christian wins through in the face of much distress. He meets a fellow pilgrim called Faithful. Together they press on to Vanity Fair with all of its carnality, where both of them are imprisoned and where Faithful is martyred. Christian is delivered and travels on with another friend, Hopeful, who has come to be a pilgrim through the testimony of Christian and Faithful. Although the two escape the snares of the hill Lucre, they are captured by the giant despair through Christian's foolish going out of the way and held for a time in Doubting Castle. Again, they escape, this time through the use of a key called Promise. On they travel to the delectable mountains where four shepherds called Knowledge, Experience, Watchful, and Sincere care for them, give them a sight of the celestial city far ahead. Pressing on through encounters with men, including ignorance and atheist, they come to enchanted ground. To prevent themselves being made drowsy and lulled to sleep, they talk of good matter and so pass through the enchanted ground to the land of Beulah, to a place of rest and delight. One last obstacle awaits them before they can reach the heavenly city, a river called death. There is no way to the celestial gate but through this river, the depth of which changes depending on the faith of those passing through it. Hopeful passes through quite easily, but Christian is at first overwhelmed with fears. Hopeful strives to keep his friend's head above the water with encouragement, and soon Christian gets a view of Christ that delivers him from his fears. The two men pass through the river to the celestial city. They are welcomed into glory. Put yourself in the story. You are Christian. Where are you on your pilgrimage? Are you in some slew of despond, wrestling with Apollyon, captured by giant despair, imprisoned in Doubting Castle? Or are you settled somewhat comfortably in Vanity Fair in a place of fleshly carnality? Maybe you're at or approaching the final river about to pass over into the celestial city and you are a mixture of excitement and, uh, and wonder along with a little bit of trepidation. Uh, it's, we're all somewhere on a pilgrimage and we're all really at different places uh, and, and some of them are not so nice places. You, you have to understand that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, uh, maybe you go from here and listen to other messages that are, seem more hopeful. Uh, but I like to let you know that you're in, as Jesus said, in the world you would have what? Tribulation. And some of it is just, it just tears you up as you watch others go through it, as you go through it yourself. But that's what it means to be a pilgrim. You're all at different spots. You may not always be at that spot. You may be at a better spot. You may be at a worse spot. But it is a pilgrimage and you're 
on your way to a city whose builder and maker is God. Read about it, Revelation 21 and 22. The best thing I can do this morning is to just greet you by saying, hello, pilgrim. Let's pray.